Okay, so Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was put in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone on the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day, day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And our second reading will be from <coughs> Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And in the book of Acts, we see the powerful work of Jesus continue on through the Holy Spirit and his empowering of the early apostles and disciples who carried the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and as we've seen the last few weeks, into the ends of the earth, down through the generations and even to us today. We pray now as we continue on and finish this last sermon in this series, you will continue to encourage us to see the power of the Lord Jesus at work and continuing to, to bring the gospel to the nations, even in spite and even with the accompanying persecution and suffering that will always come to those who seek to preach the gospel and live for Jesus. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you all to imagine for a moment with me that over the next 12 months or so, we found ourselves in a revival, right, in a revival. Uh, many of our unbelieving friends accept invitations to come to church, right? Whoever we invite, they come. Uh, and we even have to have at least half of our regulars standing outside, right, in the courtyard, because there's not enough space, right, in the hall. Uh, the two CE groups that we're running is not enough, right? We've got to run four, six, eight at one time because we just can't fit, right, in Sonia's house uh, and wherever else we run CE. Um, the, the reading group is bursting, uh, and we're having to have three, four homes of people reading um, reason for God. Now, for those who come to the courses, at least half of them come to faith, right? Sometimes even within the course or, or just after. We have people who have joined us for church, who have left church a long time ago because of some hurts, but now they are thriving as they come along over the next 12, 18 months. Those who felt dried up or burnt out in their faith start to feel restored and rejuvenated. We see leaders being raised, serving the church, uh, in the community, serving the world, and even going out into the mission field. Uh, our church community is deeply connected and committed to each other, sharing our lives with each other and growing in love for each other. Uh, our church plant, uh, which launches in the next uh, 12 months, uh, with 80 people, doubles in size within a year. And we even managed to support other FIC churches and their church planting uh, endeavors, and they too thrive. We see a real evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in us and in our church and in our communities. Now imagine for a moment that this kind of gospel growth that we've seen over the past few weeks in the book of Acts is happening here in SLE, in Brisbane, Queensland, and beyond. Now if you imagine that, I, I want you to imagine what things would be like. How would you feel? Right? What would it be, look like as a church? Uh, imagine you'd imagine a, a real buzz, right, of excitement and expectation as we go about each day. Uh, maybe we might even shake our heads in disbelief as we wake up on a Monday morning and think, wow, God is doing great things in me and in my church. We'd be a happy and joyful church, enjoying deepening relationships, experiencing restoration, uh, and seeing renewal and lives of purpose. Perhaps we might even feel pretty fearless uh, and bulletproof because God has got our backs, so let's go, Right? Each week, let's go. But what we might not imagine, what we might not imagine is that there will be much suffering. 
We might not imagine there will be much suffering. Because when we imagine things to be going well, right, in our, in our lives as Christians, in the work of the gospel, in ministry, do we imagine that suffering will certainly come along with that? Right? Do we imagine that? Because that's what we see in our passage today. The final chapter we'll be looking at in this short sermon series in Acts, that we see that about the same time, right, the beginning words of chapter 12, about the same time as the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, as we've seen in the last few chapters, as, as great many were coming to faith in Jesus and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, as believers were, were growing in vibrant communities and serving even believers far afield in other countries, we see that great persecution was happening. The faithful were killed and imprisoned. All were made to fear and many to flee. And so we see the point of this passage today is that the growth of the gospel comes with powerful persecution. But the Lord's power triumphs and so the gospel grows, right? The growth of the gospel comes with powerful persecution, but the Lord's power triumphs and so the gospel grows, and the implications for us is clear, right? Trust in our powerful Lord, pray with faith, and persevere in ministry. Now, as we begin uh, chapter 12, we see that the first four verses there about powerful persecution, right? Verses 1 to 4. Now, let me quickly introduce you to Herod, because uh, there are a lot of Herods, isn't there, in the Bible, if you didn't realize, okay? So, a bit of family tree. Uh, the Herod that we see in Acts 12 with the uh, red, red uh, arrow there is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, yeah? He is the one that's uh, all the mentions of Herod in Acts is this guy, right? And he is the grandson, as you can see, of Herod the Great, right? The guy who was king when Jesus was born, right? The guy who tried to kill uh, all the firstborn uh, of Israel for fear that this new king would arise and, and usurp his throne, Okay? The other uh, uh, Herod there in the middle line, the blue there, Herod Antipas, that was the Herod ruling when Jesus was crucified. Okay? So just in case you get confused about all the Herods, there you go, the Herod family tree. Now the Herods, they were a Jewish family right, appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over the Jews, right, to rule over Israel. And the Herods, uh, for that reason, were typically hated by the Jews as being traitors because they were serving the Roman Empire, uh, even though they were a Jew. Um, now, the Herods, uh, they knew this, and they saw at every opportunity, they tried to like, kind of curry favor with the Jews whenever they could. And we see this, especially with uh, Agrippa I, right? He really wanted to curry favor with the Jews right, to be accepted by them as their ruler, as this ruler. And, and so we see that this violence right, in these first four verses against Christianity, against the Christians, against the church, uh, was because Herod knew that this pleased the Jews. Well, we see that, right? Because it pleased the Jews, so Herod made sure that he persecuted the church. So using the, the might of Rome, Herod would lay his violent hands on the church, and we hear the report, right, that he beheaded James, uh, the brother of John, and then now he has Peter arrested. And because it's during the Jewish festivals, which you can't execute people on, he was basically in prison waiting for the weekend to be over, so that he will be executed right, when the, the, the festivals have finished. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment how the believers would have felt uh, as these things were happening. Right, if you know James, he's one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples and apostles. Uh, he had just been killed. And now the, uh, the arguably head of their, uh, of their movement, right, the chief apostle Peter, uh, he's imprisoned, waiting for his death sentence. 
And as you read in verses 1 to 4, there doesn't seem to be any possibility for Peter to escape. You notice the massive overkill insecurity here. Now, this is one powerless preacher who is chained hand and foot to two guards, right, with two sentries on duty, right? As you'll see that in the story, one in one gate and then one in another gate. And there are uh, four teams of four soldiers taking six-hour shifts each, right? None of them will be sleeping on duty, right? Because there are four teams of four. Now, at this point in time, what else could the church do, right, but to pray? That's all they could do, right? So they did pray with earnest, fervent, persistent prayer. You see, the weapon of the powerless is prayer, isn't it? The weapon of the powerless is prayer. But even then, prayer can seem so pointless, can't it, sometimes? Prayer can seem so pointless and powerless. Now, no doubt they would have prayed for James as well, right? They would have known that James would have been arrested and then he killed, so their prayers weren't answered for James' rescue and deliverance. Now, about the same time as the gospel was growing globally, growing in great ways, with great many coming to faith, with great vibrancy in the church and acts of service, about that time, such powerful persecution was happening. Now, I wonder whether we expect the growth of the gospel to come with suffering. That's why I said in the introduction, do we expect that when things are going really well in the church and with the gospel growing, that we expect suffering? We ought not to be surprised. We ought not to be surprised, for this is precisely what happened to Jesus. And this is what Jesus prepared His disciples and apostles for when He would die. And this is what the Word of God consistently reminds us and warns us about. Have a look at John 15, what what Jesus said uh, to the disciples. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and this is Jesus speaking, they will persecute you, you disciples, you apostles. He warned them this is what would happen. And then the apostle Paul tells uh, the church in Philippi, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, right, and receive all the blessings of belief, but also suffer for his sake. You see, there's no such thing as a Christianity and a gospel that doesn't include suffering. Gospel commitment has always been and will always be costly. Will always be costly. Any Christianity that promises deliverance from all troubles that assures the faithful of the best life now, a life of success and ease, is no Christianity at all. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. And so it is not Christian to promise deliverance from all troubles. In fact, it's dangerous, isn't it? Very dangerous not knowing that gospel success comes with gospel suffering. If we don't know this, we'll shy away from sharing the gospel and living for Jesus when things get hard. And they will get hard when family and friends push you away or they get upset when we find that the world wants to cancel us and shun us when we speak up for our faith and share Jesus. If we don't understand this, we will just shrink back and fall away from Jesus ourselves. Now, the believers face powerful persecution under Herod. But then we get to see another side of the story as well, don't we? The Lord's power to rescue. The Lord's power to rescue. Now, persecution brought violence against uh, many others, uh, and it took the life of Jesus. But what about for Peter? What about for Peter? 
Now, in verses 5 to 11, we see God's answer, don't we, to the prayers of the church for Peter. We see God's power displayed in Peter's rescue. Now, Peter, remember, uh, is under maximum security, right? Under maximum security. Uh, and there he is, sleeping like a log, isn't he? Sleeping like a log. Uh, how could he even sleep uh, in this situation? It's amazing, isn't it? He's bound to two guards. It's so uncomfortable. Uh, and he's facing certain death in the next day or two. Right? Maybe it was his great faith right, that gave him peace. Right? He had faith that gave him peace, maybe. I don't think so. I don't think it was faith that gave him peace because I think Peter was more likely just resigned to his faith. James just got killed not long ago. I'm next. I'm just going to sleep. Right? I'm not going to bother. There doesn't seem to be any expectation in Peter that he's going to be rescued. All right, the angel has to literally strike Peter on the side to wake him up, which reminds me of when, you know, uh, when Stacy was born, uh, and then in the middle of the night, even though Stacy was sleeping next to me all right, in the cot, and Faith was on the other side of the bed, Stacy would be crying and crying, and I'll be like there to sleep, and Faith would have to like, jab me to wake me up. Right? This is my turn right, to feed the baby or change the baby. Now, uh, Peter kind of gets up, but he thinks it's all a dream. Now, there's no way this is happening for real in Peter's mind, right? So it's just all a dream. So he mindlessly just follows all the instructions that the angel gives to him. Uh, in a day stupor, he, he gets dressed. Uh, he puts on his shoes, and then he wears his cloak. Maybe it's the cloak on invisibility. No, just normal cloak, probably. Um, and and uh, he starts to walk. As the angel tells him, right? he's, prop- he's, he's sleepwalking, really, isn't he? He hasn't properly walked up yet. Uh, out past one guard, and then out past another guard, and finally he gets out through the main gates onto the street. And Peter clearly has done nothing except think that he's dreaming. He doesn't even believe it's happening for real. The angel of the Lord has done it all in rescuing Peter. Now, it's only when the, when the angel leaves Peter in, a, kind of in the middle of the city streets uh, that Peter comes to his senses and realizes that it was all real. Now, Peter, no doubt, would have been praying fervently at some point for his rescue, yet it doesn't look like he really believed, did he? You see, what this highlights even more clearly then is the power of the Lord Jesus. It is certainly not Peter's faith that saved him. It is purely the power of the Lord that rescues Peter. Peter himself, he came to this realization when he woke himself up. In verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You see, this specific rescue had a very clear purpose, to demonstrate the Lord's power to save his servants. Now let's be clear. Jesus doesn't promise to rescue all who are persecuted in this way, right? James wasn't. Many in the early church weren't. Thousands who faced persecution ever since then, even to the point of death. And even in the years to come, not everyone, in fact, maybe not many will be rescued in this way, but Peter was, and that's the point of this story. And no doubt you've heard other stories of other believers, other servants of the gospel who've been rescued in truly miraculous ways. Jesus won't always rescue in this specific way, but he does here. In order to show his power, especially to this young church in fear, to show them that he has the power to rescue. You see, for Peter and the early church, they needed to know this and to believe this. This clear and special and utterly miraculous rescue was Jesus' 
gracious gift right, to his early church for them to be certain that he is the Lord and to continue on to serve him. And so they were right to pray to their Lord Jesus and they were right to persevere in trusting him and in preaching his gospel. Now I wonder, I wonder, do you believe that the Lord can rescue? Do you believe that the Lord has the power to rescue? Do you pray big prayers, right, for rescue and deliverance, which humanly speaking seems impossible? Now, many, many of us don't find ourselves in that situation, but maybe we are those who do read uh, things like Barnabas Fund and Open Doors, and we hear about persecuted Christians in other parts of the world. And do we actually pray with, with any kind of faith that God can rescue them? Now, certainly... Uh, not often, perhaps rarely so, will God rescue in this kind of miraculous way. But even more so then, we need to trust that God can rescue in miraculous ways. The Lord Jesus has demonstrated His absolute power to rescue anyone in any situation. You see, when it comes to our rescue, though, there is a promise of deliverance that is for all. Right? Not necessarily this kind of miraculous deliverance, but there is a deliverance that is promised to every single faithful believer of Jesus. And the, 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 the key is to understand the true battle right, that faces all believers, uh, the battle that's described for us in Matthew 10. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the similar theme, Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, these, these passages tell us that our ultimate battle isn't against physical enemies. The persecution and opposition by the people of this world that can harm our bodies and take our lives, that's not where the real battle lies. Yes, it is a true battle, but the real battle, the ultimate battle, is against the spiritual forces of evil, against sin, against death, and against the evil one, the devil. And so in the gospel, we promise that the promise is given to us all that we will be rescued. We will be rescued from all of this. Not necessarily in this life, but certainly in the life that is to come. The rescue that we, we are promised in the gospel is certain. And as we and other believers face persecution and opposition and censorship as we suffer for the sake of Christ, as we face great pressures to conform to this world, uh, to, to denounce or to belittle our faith, I wonder how big and powerful Jesus is to you in those situations, in those moments. Can your Jesus rescue you? Can He rescue us? Can He rescue our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world in miraculous ways? Yes, for sure. But even more importantly, can He, can he rescue all of us from all of the enemies that truly matter in the life to come? How sure we are that Jesus will rescue us into the, our eternal glory from all the enemies that we'll face in this life, in the life to come, how sure we are of this determines how we will respond when life gets hard as a believer. It will determine how we will continue to live for Christ, you know, proudly wear our cross, say our prayers in public, 
preach the gospel and make choices that honor our Lord Jesus. How sure we are of our rescue will determine how we live for Jesus now. Now, for the early believers, certainly the ones in the story, you see that their faith was lacking, isn't it? Like they, weren't, they didn't seem to be so sure, which is quite strange, isn't it? Because we see in this passage, uh, in verse 12 and in, in the beginning of the chapter, that they were praying, weren't they, with such uh, fervor, with such earnestness, with such persistence. They were praying, they were gathering uh, in homes together, yet uh, they didn't seem to believe in their prayers. Now, I'm sure many of you know the comical story well, right, that's uh, reflected in these verses. Uh, Peter comes to his senses. Remember, we find Peter in the middle of the city street. He comes to his senses and he figures, I better take cover, right? I better get somewhere safe. I'm a fugitive now, right? He's just done a jailbreak. So he goes to where the disciples are hiding out, right? the house of uh, Mary, the mother of John. Uh, they've probably been there the entire time that Peter was in prison, uh, probably over the last few days. Uh, they've been bunkering down, surely uh, gripped by some level of fear, uh, seeking to support and encourage each other during this time of persecution. Uh, and they were praying and praying and praying for protection, and for deliverance. And so Peter arrives at the front gate uh, of this house, uh, and right, he knocks, perhaps pretty quietly, because it's in the middle of the night, remember? Uh, he doesn't want to draw unnecessary attention. Right? He's a fugitive on the run. And perhaps the people in the house, they're praying quietly, and then they hear this, and they're freaking out, right? Like, who could it be? Have the authorities found us? Right? Has our hiding place been figured out? So they sent the servant Rhoda. And it's amazing that her name is actually mentioned. So, so famous is this story. There's a little servant girl, Rhoda. is sent out, and she gets to the door. And she's like there, peering out through the gates. It's dark. Who, who, who's there? Right? You can imagine the fear, maybe in her voice. And then, uh, it, it's me, Peter. Right? And Rhoda freaks out. She recognizes the voice, right? He, she, he is her leader, the leader of the Christian church at this time. She's over the moon, and in her excitement, in her joy, she runs back in. She was like a kind of a ditzy girl. Maybe she's blonde. Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> right? So she, she's a bit of a ditz, and so she runs back in, and, and she can't wait to tell everyone in the house, right, prayers have been answered. Peter, it's, it's here. Oh, poor Peter. He's left out on the street. He's trying to find the darkest shadow to hide in. Uh, but Rhoda goes back inside and doesn't let him in. Now, the disciples inside the house, on hearing what, Peter, uh, what Rhoda says, says, um, you're out of your mind. You are out of your mind. Now, that's what they think about God's ability to answer their prayers, isn't it? Rhoda keeps insisting, and they keep disbelieving, and they come up with an alternative, uh, um, uh, rather ridiculous possibility. It's his angel. But I haven't heard any angels knocking on doors before. And so we hear this continuing on, a physical person knocking on a physical door, and finally they figured, I better open the door and let this guy in. They see Peter and they're amazed, as you'd imagine. They're amazed. You can imagine they're getting all excited, right, raising their voices, and Peter goes, shh, not so loud. We'll get found out. Anyway, Peter recounts the story about how the angels of the Lord rescued him while he was still pretty much in dreamland. Uh, and he tells the disciples to go and tell James and all the other disciples to encourage them, to tell them that their prayers have been answered. I'm safe. But not only is Peter safe, we're given the account that the story ends with the report that the, uh, the poor guards, right, uh, the four 
guards of in four teams, they're put to death. Because the Roman war for guards who let their prisoners free is the death penalty. And so the, the story begins with Herod on a rampage trying to bring down the church of the Lord Jesus, but it ends with Herod himself suffering loss, loss of his own forces. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, the turnaround? Now, I want you to imagine how encouraging and amazing this would have been for all the believers back then. Well, I tried to dramatize it, but I'm no actor. But I need you to have an imagination. If you were there in that room in, in Mary's house, praying fervently for days in fear, how encouraged must you have been back then? Can you imagine how it would have felt having prayed long and hard to have your, answers pray, uh, uh, your prayers answered in a way that you, you didn't even believe could be answered? That's so why I wonder, I wonder whether we pray faithlessly, not expecting that God will answer. I know we all pray, or at least most of us pray some of the time, but I wonder whether we truly believe that God answers prayers. Now, for some of us, I think prayer is an area in which we feel a bit burned. We feel maybe a bit discouraged in our prayer lives. Perhaps our experience of prayer is one of endless disappointment. God doesn't seem to have answered any of your prayers, especially the ones that you've prayed persistently for years. And so now you've prayed, but you simply kind of go through the motions. That's the Christian thing to do. Perhaps that's been made worse by the fact that you've been taught things that are false or misleading. Perhaps you've been told that the problem is with you and with your faith. <clears throat> the problem is with you and your faith. If only you had enough faith, God would have answered you. You've been taught that lie. Or you've been taught wrongly, taught wrongly to expect with certainty that God will give you all that you ask for. Now, now isn't the time to correct all of the misunderstandings about prayer. Although it seems to me that there's so many misunderstandings on prayer, we should have a sermon series just on prayer because there are many misunderstandings. But the very clear point from this passage right, is, is that the Lord has the power. The Lord has the power to even answer our biggest prayers especially especially when it comes to the things like the deliverance of his servants who are in danger for his sake. Now, the point of this passage isn't to teach us the ins and outs about prayer, but to teach us about the Lord that we pray to. It's not about how to pray. It's about the Lord that we pray to. He is far more powerful than we know or can imagine. You know that? He is far more powerful than we know or we can imagine. And so my question is, how big is the Lord that you pray to? How big is the Lord Jesus that you pray to? Because you only bring small things to a small God. Right? You only bring small things to a small God. That's all He can handle. But if, you're, if your God is big, if your God is all-powerful, you'll bring everything small and big to Him. Now, I have to admit that this is one big area of my life in which I need to work on. Right? I, can, I, I preach this with conviction. I believe this, but in my day-to-day -day life, especially as I face challenges in my own life and in ministry, and I look at the, the state of the, the world around me, as I see the, the deep relational problems even in my netball team, uh, not to mention as I see the, the, the hurts and pains in the lives of my, my children and their friends at school and the families that they come from, as I hear stories, so I hear about things in the news around the world. Do I really believe and do I really pray that God is big? 
You see, I think our prayers reflect how we view God. As to what kind of prayers we bring to God and to what level we believe that God will act according to His will and His goodness. Now, I think it's with this in mind that our author, Luke, finishes this section uh, with an incident that might seem rather random and out of place, right? The last six verses of this chapter. And this chapter, this last six verses, I think, is really about true power. It's about true power. Um, who has it? Right? Who has true power? As we've seen already, King Herod was a man with power. And he used it to bring powerful persecution against the church. And to further highlight his power, we're told of this story of his beef with these two uh, cities, Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you don't know Tyre and Sidon, they are coastal cities, pretty prominent ones, that are not in Israel, right? They're up in uh, Lebanon, or back in that time it was called Phoenicia, so it's not Herod's rule. But then Herod had some kind of control over them because he controlled their food supply, okay? Now, what that, the exact problem uh, that Herod had with these two cities, we're not told, and it doesn't matter, okay? Um, what is important is to see... Herod in his pomp, exerting power and receiving adulation that bordered on worship. So have a look at verse 21 and 22, right? On an appointed day, on an appointed, appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man, right? They would be repeating it, like some chant. Now for someone like Herod, Thirsty for power and hungry to rule, this no doubt would have been the best moment of his life. And you can imagine it, right? Herod, imagine me and Herod on my throne, or I'm standing up at the balcony of my palace and gathered before my feet, right, with all my subjects and all these cowering Phoenicians from Tyre and Sidon, right, begging me for mercy and for help. Can you imagine, right, how powerful I would feel at that time? And not only that, he's decked out in his royal robes. If you're going to search the history books, uh, the Herods wore this uh, silver garment uh, that was uh, fashioned in such a way that it was maximum reflectivity. So when the sun was shining, they glowed right, like the sun, glorious like a god. I wish I, was, I could find a picture that would show you this, but I couldn't find one. You've got to just imagine it, okay? Okay, turn on the lights brighter. Right? Make me glow. I should have worn a white shirt today. Actually, it would be nicer. Actually, I can't see now. I just looked at the light. I see a light spot. Okay. Uh, Imagine, right, the praise, the adulation, the worship, the voice of a God, not a man. Human power doesn't get any higher than this. And Herod, having uh, received all this worship as he was really a God, and at that very moment, right, he's struck by one of the angels of the Lord, and he's eaten by worms, we're told, until he finally breathes his last. Now, lest we think that this is a made-up story, this sounds fantastical, right? Well, I mean, what do you mean? You know, struck dead, eaten by worms. Listen to this uh, report by Josephus, who is a Jewish historian that is not Christian. Right? You can go and search this yourself, right? Jewish uh, antiquities. Let me read to you a passage. I chopped it out a little bit because it's too long. You can find the full reference yourself, right? Just search it. Have a listen to this. Josephus, the non-Christian Jewish historian, writes this. Now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and as such as were of dignity through his province. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theatre early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's ray upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror 
over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a god. Under this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed his life, being in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. History books, A.D. 44. The real Herod Agrippa I died. Having received the adulation as a god and being struck by an angel, he died five days later with a pain from his tummy. Right? This is not a Christian book. This is Josephus right, writing in the Antiquities of the Jew, book 19, chapter 8, section 2. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? Reading this non-Christian reporting about Herod's death in AD 44. But the question is, who is truly God? And the reason this passage is here is to show us that the one with true power is the Lord Jesus. Clearly, isn't it? It's so clear that Herod might have gone around throwing around his power, exerting his power even to the point of persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus. But the one who is truly powerful is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We see it in this chapter alone. I mean, we can, we can go to other chapters, but in this chapter alone, we see it so clearly. The Lord's powerful rescue of Peter, the putting of Herod in his place, the global growth of the gospel that could not be stopped, even though powerful people tried with powerful means to try to stop it. Our chapter finishes with one more of those beautiful progress reports. Chapter uh, 20, uh, 12, verse 24, 25. Have a look, right? The last two verses of this section. Right before the, 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 the gospel really goes out into the rest of the world. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You hear that, right? But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God just kept going out. More and more people being added, being multiplied, right? Exponential who received salvation through the name of the Lord Jesus. Spirit-filled apostles and disciples carrying on with the work of the gospel. And all through the years, nothing has changed. The gospel has just keep growing and growing. Thousands and then millions. And perhaps, who knows, even billions over the last 2,000 years have become Christians, including us. You and me, who believe in Jesus and saved. Why? Because the powerful Lord Jesus Christ has worked through His Spirit-filled disciples to bring about the global growth of the gospel of God. God truly is committed to the global growth of His gospel. And He will do it through persecution and suffering. The fact that the gospel grows even in the face of such powerful opposition further highlights the Lord's power. Nothing can stop the gospel going out. And so my final question, my final so do you, is, so do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you do believe this, if you do believe in the power of the Lord and His commitment to the global growth of the gospel, then persevere in living for Jesus and preaching His gospel. 
Press on in whatever way you can to share your faith. Even if it is just to wear a cross. Even if it's just to say grace before you eat a meal. Even if it is, whatever it is, whatever small and big ways that you possibly can, keep on sharing your faith in Jesus and living for Him. And do so, but do so prayerfully, knowing that the Lord can deliver the persecuted, whether in this life and certainly in the one to come. Persevere confidently, knowing that the gospel will go out, that the salvation through Christ will be received by many. The Lord is powerful. Who knows? Perhaps the Lord is going to bring about a revival over the next 12 months. Can you imagine that? Right? I, when I wrote what I wrote in the first you know, uh, few hundred words of this sermon, it really was just a pipe dream. But can you imagine if the Lord so chooses to bring us revival? If so, be prepared for the suffering that will come with it. Because it will come. But we believe in the powerful Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would expand our minds and expand our hearts to really take on board just how powerful you are. That you truly are not just committed to the growth of the gospel and seeing people saved, you have the power to achieve it. And you've shown us this in this beautiful chapter of Acts down through the centuries and millennia and to us today. Please help us to see the truth of your word and the reality of history, that you are committed to the growth of your gospel and you have achieved it, even in spite of the suffering that has surely come. And so, Father, we pray that you'll help us to keep trusting in the power of the Lord Jesus, to keep praying with faith that you truly can rescue in any situation, but that you certainly will rescue us, no matter what happens in this life, even if we are killed for our faith, and that we are secure for the eternity to come in your glorious kingdom. And we pray that you'll help us to persevere in living for Jesus and preaching the gospel in whatever small or big and bold ways. Please help us to persevere. Please bring us encouragement. We pray that it be your will, that there will be a revival, that there will be many that will come to faith in the coming 12 months and even longer. And as that happens, we pray that you'll help us to be prepared for the suffering that will come. We thank you for, for your word. And we pray for your comfort and encouragement in Jesus' name.